All right. Good morning, Calvary Vista. Great to see you today. I did get a haircut, so (laughs) let's take out our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 11. It's such a blessing to be here with you today. I've known Rob for many years and have admired this church from afar and I'm so blessed to be able to stand with you and to open up the beautiful word of God today. Uh, Our vision up in Calvary Monterey, up in Northern California, is Jesus famous. And what we mean by that is uh, mostly what Paul the Apostle prayed quite often for the various churches that he ministered to. He prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be opened or enlightened to understand things like the length and width and depth of Christ which passes knowledge. I I think that Paul understood that when a person uh, feels, believes, sees, understands, comprehends who Jesus is within, it creates a reverberation of fruitfulness in their lives. So the honor of Christ, the fame of Christ, the glory of Christ, the really kind of the thing that Jesus told us to pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, a reverence for who Uh, Jesus is. So I love singing songs with the church and praising the Lord together and getting our eyes on him. As as his fame grows in our hearts, uh, we are changed and transformed. Amen. Uh, My wife, Christina, and I, she's actually here with me. She'll be here at the second service uh, fellowshipping with with all of you. But we've got uh, three teenage daughters, so you can put me on your prayer list right now. I can only tell that joke for a little while longer because my oldest daughter is about to turn 20 years old. She's uh, actually going into her junior year at Biola University. And uh, yeah, a couple of Biola people. Well, woo. And, um, and then my other two, my, I have a, a daughter going into her senior year. She's a little ballerina. And then my youngest is a sophomore. She's my little snuggle buddy at home. So we left them at home. We will miss them this week. But That's a little bit about who we are. Hey, I just wanted to uh, start today by reading the whole psalm together. So if you guys would follow along, I'll read it out loud and then uh, pray, and then I'll share some thoughts with you from it. Uh, Psalm 11, verse uh, 1, starting out with a little superscription uh, of the psalm. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their string, uh, their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord, verse 4, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates upon the wicked. He will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you this morning for your holy word, uh, a, a passage that I think encourages us to get our eyes afresh on you. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that that would occur in our hearts this morning and that the immovable confidence that David displayed in this prayer would be what we walk around with in everyday life, an unshakable, undeterred confidence and assurance that you're on the throne, that you're moving, that you have a plan, and that you are worthy of our pursuit every day of our lives. And so, Lord, we commit this time in your word together, and I pray, Lord, your blessing upon this church, that great days of fruitfulness would come for this body of believers until you return. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, the, the Jewish Christians that the book of Hebrews addresses, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the book of Hebrews, uh, those believers, they, they went through some trying and some difficult times. Uh, part of what they went through was that they were really, in a sense, ostracized from the Jewish culture that had been their cradle and had nurtured them over the years. You know, their belief in Jesus as the Messiah really cost them in their home cultures and in their home environment. Uh, but then on top of that, as they took the gospel into all the world, which of course at that time was colored and influenced by the Roman Empire, uh, they also found that not only were they, in a sense, kind of ostracized from their home culture, uh, but they realized that the culture or the way of life in the Greco-Roman world was also not compatible to their faith and their Christianity. In a, in a sense, their belief in Jesus made them uh, a, a homeless people, so to speak. Uh, that, that's why uh, Hebrews is the book that houses that verse that we quote a lot in Hebrews 10 about how we should not forsake the assembling of the saints. Uh, the, the writer just understood there's no way you guys who are kind of homeless right now, who have, who have been ostracized from your home culture and who uh, can't find a place in secular culture, uh, you guys need to form and an, the, the new humanity that Jesus won for you, the church. You need to partake in it because that is, in a sense, your new home. Uh, but not only did they need the church, they needed endurance. Uh, so in the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 10 and verse 36 to 39, the author said, uh, you have need of endurance. God's righteous one must live by faith. But if he shrinks back, God is not pleased. But we are not those who shrink back, but we are those, the author said, who have faith. Who do you want to be this morning? Do you want to be one of those that shrinks back? We should all say no. Uh, but we want to be those who stand in confidence and assurance and in conviction that God is working, that God is moving. It's this endurance. It's this unshrinkable and immovable confidence that I think our psalm that we just read addresses. Uh, it's a confidence that I believe not only did David need and the early Christians need, but I think it's a confidence that we need in our lives today. Uh, rather than be anxious about life, rather than be anxious about the future, we have to have faith and confidence in what God is doing right now. That faith, 
leads to the kind of life that's found in this psalm because as Hebrews goes on to say, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. That's what David looks like in this song, and I'll explain it to you. He looks like a man who is sure that God is working and a man who is convinced of God's goodness and that it was coming. Okay, but uh, there were some reasons why uh, David might not have that confidence. And what's happening in this psalm is that someone at the beginning of the song talks to David about it. Uh, We don't know the situation that David was in at the point that this prayer was written, but, but whatever it was, it was so bad that someone exhorted David. They said to David, you are in such a bad spot. You need to flee like a bird to the mountains. You need to run away. You need to distance yourself. You need to self-preserve. He went on to say to David that the finger of David's enemy, and maybe it was Saul, maybe it was somebody else. Again, we don't know the setting, but the finger of David's enemy was was on the trigger of the weapon. The, the, The bow was on the string. The arrow was ready to fly. Uh, In verse two, he says, the archer, they're there in the shadows. They're ready to assassinate. They're ready to take you out, David. And and not only was that David's personal situation, but look at verse three. The person speaking to David says, the very foundations have been destroyed. This is an interesting little statement because this is likely a reference to the foundations of the society that David was in. The very foundations of his society had been destroyed or ruined. Now, like I said, we don't really know the specific background of this song, uh, but David certainly went through moments where he felt a shakeup of his world, a shakeup of his society. Uh, There were the times, of course, where Saul, his father-in-law, when he was king of Israel, through his madness and his insanity, uh, overturned righteousness in Israel. And then later in David's life, his son Absalom did the same thing. Whoever spoke to David had come to a frightening conclusion. They were scrolling through their newsfeed and had seen the signs. The wicked, they said in verse 2 are on the rise, aiming at everyone who is upright in heart. The foundations of society itself, they said to David, are crumbling. So this was their conclusion. It's found in verse 3. What can the righteous do? It felt so hopeless and impossible. They just said, there's nothing that we can do. You need to run away. You need to flee. Okay, but for as logical And as reasonable as this person sounded when they talked to David, when they rattled off their list of current events, they were wrong and David knew it. In fact, he couldn't believe that they were trying to manipulate his soul. That's how he starts out this song. How can you say to my soul? How can you try to say these things to me? He said, no, in the Lord, I put my trust. Or in the English Standard Version, in the Lord, I take refuge. This attitude from David 
I mean, it's the same, it's the same attitude that, uh, that enabled David to go out and slay Goliath. You guys remember that story, right? I mean, that's like one everybody knows. But when David appeared at the site of that battle, if you read 1 Samuel 17, what you'll discover is that nobody said the Lord's name until David was there. Everybody else, all the Israelite soldiers, they were thinking about themselves. They were thinking about the calamity. They were thinking about Goliath. David shows up and he's like, who is this guy that he would defy the armies of the living God? David was able to take the complexity of his world and all the things that he was going through. And he was able to put God into the equation for all of his faults. David always was conscious of seeing, thinking about what would, what is God doing What is God up to? And that was David. He had this hope in the Lord, despite the truthfulness of so many of the things that this person said to David at the beginning of this song, he understood God is my trust. God is my refuge. That was David. And I believe that that Davidic like confidence is important for our day as well. I think we're, we're in a time where the very foundations even of our society are under siege. You know, we're, we're taught, of course, that in essence, all we are are highly unlikely cosmic accidents. And so we begin to build philosophies and a way of life that is, that is uh, you know, on, standing on the foundation of that understanding of our origin. Pretty soon, we start rewriting all the pillars of society, Uh, the sanctity of human life, care for other people, sex and gender, family, and many other categories get written and rewritten over and over again. But the foundational chaos that David felt or David experienced in Israel, it actually doesn't find its best corollary in societal chaos in the world, but in societal chaos in the church. Uh, Israel was God's people. David was part of God's people. And the church, of course, are also God's chosen people. And when the church drifts from the fear of God, When the church drifts from doctrinal soundness or from gospel clarity, when we drift from lives that are filled with holiness and good works, the very foundations are corrupted. And I think we live in a day that is kind of like that. I I actually heard or read of a a report that had been done uh, recently by the Barna Group where they had asked a a lot of self-identifying Christians They'd asked the theological question, was Jesus the greatest being that God ever made? Now, you guys know Jesus is God. He was not made. That is a major theological error. It's, it's actually heretical. But a major percentage of self-identified Christians said, yes, he is the greatest being that God ever made. There are a lot of things that we know in our modern time, but I think we live in an age where the foundations even of the church are being shaken. We've got to be able to understand the doctrine of the Trinity or eternal judgment or justification by faith. The foundations so often feel as if they've been destroyed. That's the true tragedy of our time. When the world acts like the world, you know what that is? Expected. 
But when the church acts like the world, that's the atrocity. Now, this state of things is the very reason that we have to recover an immovable confidence in our God. And by the way, that's where I'm going this morning. You guys are like, man, this guy, he's just a bummer. Uh, I'm trying to get to a place today. Uh, David decided to put his trust in the Lord, and we have to make the same decision every day. When we hear that despondent question at the end of verse three, what can the righteous even do about it? We should bolt up and say, with God's help, anything. There's nothing that the righteous cannot do in the strength and power of the Lord. Uh, my, uh, my two, uh, my, my second, my 17 year old and my 15 year old daughter, they recently uh, were helping out at a middle school camp that our church was putting on with a number of other churches. And uh, the, they were kind of like junior leaders. And there was this whole group of these junior leaders. And they were, uh, one of their duties was when all the middle school students started rolling in, in their buses, they were supposed to be like the welcoming committee. And so what they decided to do was form one of those like human uh, tunnels, you know, where they're like, clapping hands or whatever and introducing all the kids. And the theme of the conference was fight the fight. And I think kind of about like fighting the good fight of faith or something like that, fight the fight. And so they were up there making this human tunnel and these middle school kids were getting off their buses and they're going through this human tunnel and the, all the junior leaders are saying, fight the fight, fight the fight, fight the fight. And they're just saying it over and over again. Well, they discovered later that a lot of the kids that were coming off the bus, it was kind of a jarring experience because they didn't understand that they were saying fight the fight. A lot of them thought they were saying sacrifice, sacrifice. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, I think sometimes we feel that way a little bit like, okay, I know I'm supposed to fight the good fight of faith. I, I know I'm, I'm not, I know I'm supposed to, you know, there's times I'm, I got to go into the lion's den. There's times I got to be in the wilderness. There's times where Christianity is going to have to be lived even out on the margins of society. I know that there's those times historically in the church. I know, I know that that happens, but it's hard for us at times to feel like fight the fight. We feel like, man, I just feel like I'm just getting slaughtered. So how do we how do we not be the guy that talks to David? What can the righteous do? All hope is lost. How can we not be that guy? And how can we be David who said, my trust is in the Lord. My confidence is in the Lord. God is doing things right now. I, I don't know how you guys feel, but to me, this is a super exciting time to be alive. You know, I, up in Monterey, you know, Christians are definitely in the vast minority Christianity is not popular. I've watched it go from being uh, just a, a respectable belief to being something that's a silly belief in the eyes of culture, you know, kind of the equivalent of like believing in the Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny to now shifting to being a dangerous belief. That, that's how many people think of it as a dangerous belief. But in the midst of all that, people are hungry. People are empty. There's a, there's a thirst so to, to me, it's an exciting time to uh, be alive. So, so how do we get to that confidence? I want to show you three things from David's response uh, to this accuser in verse four through the end of the chapter. Okay, the first thing 
that I want you to see is there in verse four, uh, David recognized that God is the ultimate king. Number one, David realized that God is the ultimate king. Uh, Chaos was unfolding around him, but he saw past all of that into God's, look at it in verse four, God's holy temple in heaven. And uh, what he saw there was the Lord seated on his throne. He He had just this like image in his mind of God seated on his throne. He's confident. He's in control. From his throne room vantage point, God could see everything. And as he saw everything, he tested every work of the sons of men. That's what it says there in verse four. Now in the Bible, God's throne is a symbol of his universal rule and authority. And as David considered his predicament, he was relieved from his distress by the knowledge that God has a throne way beyond the realm of man. Uh, way back in the book of Daniel, you might remember the King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who had a vision, a dream. And it was actually about Jesus's kingdom. He didn't know it at first. Uh, in his dream, he saw a statue. It had a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And uh, as he had this vision of this a statue, there was this stone that was cut out without hands and came down and struck the feet of this uh, statue and it crumbled. It was broken in pieces. Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of that dream. He told him that all the various metals from the head down to the feet represented various kingdoms that would appear uh, on earth in that era and then in the future. And that the stone that destroyed them all was actually representative of God's kingdom. He said in Daniel 2 verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the kingdom, you guys, that Jesus brought. It's a forever kingdom. It's a kingdom that outlasts all other kingdoms. It's a kingdom that will be forever and ever and ever without end. I feel like somebody should be like, amen. That's great. It's good. Now this, this knowledge that God is in control, seated on his throne and moving the universe to his desired outcome, It's designed to be a great source of relief for us as God's people, but it's meant for more than that. I mean, I hope you know that the, the, the reality that God is on the throne, that his kingdom will never end, that he has a sovereign plan, all of that. It's meant for more than our personal therapy. It's it's meant to have more than just a therapeutic effect on us. It should have that. But it should go beyond that into creating in us a people who are a non-anxious presence in an angry and divided world. We should be just so confident. God is on the move. God is doing things. My God will not fail. I don't know how it's all going to happen. But in the end, my God is going to win. 
And to just have that resolve within our hearts should create, uh, it should bring down the blood pressure, I think, is what's happening for David. And without that understanding, you know how we are. We become frightened, we become jostled. But when it becomes a settled fact that God is on the throne, we become calm and confident in him and his work on earth. Uh, Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, the recompense of God. He will come and save you. There's a weakness that we sometimes feel, an anxiety that we sometimes have, but when we see the Lord, we're, we're healed of that. We don't have to live in that dimension. Now, this knowledge that uh, God is enthroned, I think that's what we need in our modern time. You know, for, for a long time, the, the church has adopted a strategy, and sometimes this still works, but a strategy of uh, being relevant to the world as a way to reach the world. Uh, but what I've been finding is that that strategy, it really doesn't work very well with the generations that are coming up. The chasm between Christianity and the culture is just so wide and too big to bridge with something as flimsy as relevancy. (laughs) Instead, what we have to do is recognize that God is on the throne, be calm and confident, immovable in our faith, and maintain that confidence before him and live our lives as if there is another king that we are subservient to. This resilient life is what's needed, I think, to face the pressures of the day. I know that a lot of times we become overwhelmed by what we perceive as bad news, but I think in a sense we could also say that amid all the cultural chaos that we might feel, times we might say, see, there, yeah, that's like the guy said, the foundations of society are being destroyed. I think we have to also recognize that for some people, Those are the very ingredients that are required for them to be shaken up, to think about the Lord in the first place, and maybe have their hearts open to the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel. I was was actually having this conversation with my my life group or community group back home, just uh, the guys in the group via text a couple of weeks ago, and one of them had gotten a screenshot of these baptisms happening at Pirate's Cove and uh, there's thousands of people getting baptized. And I think kind of in response to that Jesus revolution movie and everything. And so he screenshotted this Instagram post and he like sent it to our group. He's like, look at this. This is amazing. Praise the Lord. And, uh, you know, he was all excited about it. And then the very next thing that he said was, uh, and, you know, too bad that stupid secular media is never going to report on something as awesome as this. You know, it's kind of like we were stoked. And then I was like, yeah, that's a bummer too. (laughs) Kind of brought the mood down for a second. But we were all kind of talking about it. And first of all, somebody in the group brought up, they're like, well, I don't know if you guys know this, but in the first century, not many secular historians wrote about Jesus and the church. And guess what? We didn't need them to. We got the job done without them. So that was cool. We got, we wrote the New Testament. But uh, then we were just kind of talking about, I wonder how many of those 5,000 people getting baptized, it was because of all the bad news that 
they began to feel, it was like a mirror held up to their lives. I'm feeling despair and empty and there's something wrong. Like I believe these world philosophies and they're not working for me. There's got to be more than this. So sometimes it's the very chaos that we're going through. And that was David's heart. He's just like, God, if I got to be in the wilderness, out in En Gedi, running for my life from my crazy father-in-law, whatever it is, I'm praying that you would use this in my life. I see you on the throne and that's where my eyes are going to be. Okay. Number two, not only did David recognize that God is on the throne, but secondly, verse five and six, he recognized that God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate judge. Uh, in verse four and in verse five, he said that God tested the righteous while hating the wicked and the one who loves violence. Uh, in other words, since God is good and holy and righteous, he's predisposed against wickedness, predisposed against violence. Uh, he is uh, in a pure and untainted way. We often are like this in a very impure and tainted way, but in, in an impure and untainted way, God hates wickedness. Now this led David to pray that God would use his predisposition to righteousness to look at verse six, rain coals uh, on the wicked fire and brimstone and burning wind. Those were the three things. He's like, God, I want to make my prayer a little more specific. I'll break it down into three categories. Fire would be nice. And then some brimstone and also just this intense burning heat. Those are the three things that I would like you to bring upon the wicked. Okay. That, that was his prayer. Now I realize that some of us, when we read prayers like that, we really like them. You know, we're like, Oh, that's cool. I like that prayer. I could pray. I could pray those. Uh, but a lot of us are uncomfortable with these. We call them imprecatory prayers that call down catastrophe or call down violence upon uh, anyone. So uh, let me give you a couple of tools to help you understand uh, a prayer like this, to, 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 to help you understand Bible passages like these. Uh, the first thing that you need to do is you, you got to determine what genre of the Bible that you're studying. Uh, the Bible is beautiful, uh, written over 2000 years by 40 or so authors. There's a cohesive message. It progresses. The revelation builds as the years go forward. It's a magnificent book. But when you read the Bible, you're, you're reading a portion of the Bible. So it's like you're going up to a book shelf and you're pulling out a book from the, we're pulling out the Psalms book right now. And you have to ask yourself, what, what part of this God's library is the Psalms? Uh, well, the Psalms are the prayer journal of the ancient people of Israel. Okay. What this helps us understand is that when you, when you pull out the Psalms, you're, you're not in like the mountain peaks of doctrine, like you would be if you pulled out the Romans book. You're, you're looking at, you're getting an, an intimate glimpse into the human feelings and prayers and heart of God's people. So in a sense, what you could say is this is a prayerful, wishful, human longing that God would judge. 
And you know how you are when you pray for God to like be the ultimate judge. Are you always like all neat and tidy about it? Like, dear Lord, in your sovereign wisdom, I pray that you would deal with it how you want to deal with it. No, sometimes you're just a little ticked and you're like, God, get them, you know? <laughs> it doesn't mean that's doctrinally how you think, but it's just the emotions that you're feeling. So you got to know the genre of the Bible you're studying. Second, you have to determine the context of the passage. There's always stuff around all of this. And for this Psalm, uh, what you could do is you could, you could actually consider, because we have the life of David written out in the historical books of the Bible, you could consider how did David live out this prayer? You, you might read this prayer and think he's like always up in the corner, just like taking Saul out or his son out. But that's not what he does. He prays like this. But remember that whole episode where he was hiding in the cave because Saul was chasing him, trying to kill him. And Saul goes into the very cave that David's in, doesn't even know David's in there, but he goes in to rest or relieve himself. And all of David's guys are like, this is the day God has provided for you. This is an open door. Go kill him. And he creeps out and his heart so overwhelms him with conviction that he just cuts off the corner of, of Saul's robe so that he can hold it out as an evidence. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he tells his guys, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. I, I, there's no way I could take that matter into my own hands. So there's a bigger context. He might've prayed like this. He might've had some of these types of prayers towards Saul, but he didn't act them out. So there's a context that you also need to think about. But third, you should determine if there's further revelation later in the Bible, further revelation about the subject later in the Bible. And here, when it comes to God's judgment and when it comes to people's attitudes towards the lost, there is a lot of further revelation later in the Bible. At the cross, we learn that Jesus took the fire and the brimstone and the burning wind of God's wrath into his body for the sin of of humanity so that anyone who would repent and trust in him would be accepted by God. And after the cross, we learned that God's people, the church, that's us. They worked hard as hard as they could so that a humanity that was sitting under the crosshairs of God's judgment could hear the gospel and be saved. So there is further revelation to consider when you're reading a prayer like these. So genre, and context, and further revelation. Okay, all that to say, in this moment in the psalm, David, he just comforted himself with the knowledge that God is the ultimate judge. He's on the throne, but he's also the ultimate judge, David is saying. He's king, he's on his throne, he's with a plan, and he will one day judge everyone and hold every human soul accountable for their lives from... Uh, for the revelation that they receive from the revelation they have in creation to the very explicit communicated gospel. God will open the books and only those who are listed in the Lamb's book of life covered by the blood of Jesus will enter into glory. And all those who rejected God and did not want to surrender to him, David is confident they will be judged. So David is comforting himself with the knowledge that though this is occurring, God is going to deal with it. God is going to wrap it all up. It's not, it's not my responsibility and I don't need to run. I can be confident in the Lord, but God is ultimately going to deal with it. I, I remember back in uh, 
it was 2010. I'm, 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 I am in Northern California, but my, my parents were from uh, Santa Ana. And so my dad raised me to root for all the LA sports teams. So in 2010, the LA Lakers were in the championship, kind of the prime Kobe years. And uh, they were playing the Boston Celtics in the finals. And they got all the way to the last and final game, game seven. So whoever wins this game is going to be world champion. And uh, in a, in a, they didn't plan it well. And so that game was on a church night, Wednesday night. I, I feel they should have consulted with the churches around the world that have a midweek service. Uh, but there was another pastor on our team. He also was a Lakers fan. And so what we said to each other was, okay, you record it on your DVR, and uh, we won't talk to anybody. It probably won't be a big deal because anybody that is interested won't be at church that night. And so we'll record the game, and then we'll go to your house afterwards, and we'll watch the game. So that's what we did. We made it through the whole service. Nobody told us what happened. We got no alerts or anything. So we went back. We're watching the game on his DVR. And uh, there was this point pretty deep into the game where the Lakers were kind of getting blown out, and it just kind of looked like, all right, it's over. They're going to lose the, the, the whole thing. They're not going to win. It looks like it's over. And then, uh, and then I think it was like in the third quarter and a commercial came on. And so, you know, DVR. So he goes to fast forward the commercial, but his thumb slipped and he, it just jumped all the way to the very end. And all we saw just like in a second, a millisecond was purple and gold confetti falling down from the sky and the Lakers celebrating on the court. So, I mean, obviously we were like, who won? You know, like we knew that they had come back. We were shocked. So then we, we were like, how did it happen? That was a huge comeback. So we rewound the game and we watched it. And it was such a different experience watching everything unfold. Every bad thing, every good thing, watching it all unfold, just kind of knowing, well, it, we know who wins at the end. <laughs> it, 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 it actually, I was, had anxiety as a fan before that, but then afterwards it was like there was no anxiety. I'm just watching. I know exactly where this is going. Kobe's going to hold up the trophy, you know, kind of thing. Well, I think that the knowledge that David had here, that God is the judge of all, that he's got a plan, that he's working toward it, that it will happen, that knowledge should have some kind of anti-anxiety effect on us today, shouldn't it? He's on the throne. He's the judge of all. Okay, last thing I want you to see, though, to wrap it up today, uh, comes from verse 7, uh, and it's this. David recognized not just that God is on the throne, not just that he's the judge, but that God is the ultimate goal. He's the, he's the best thing, if you could say that, to pursue. He's the one that we should build our lives around. But what he did is he looked to God and he saw how God is righteous and loves righteousness in verse seven. David knew that. And uh, he said, you know, as much as God sees and judges all flesh, his countenance, he says in verse seven, he says, his countenance beholds the upright. Now, now, when you read it like that, it kind of sounds like God, his face, sees his people. 
He, he beholds those that he's made righteous. He beholds the upright. Uh, but pretty much every other translation gives it a, a little different tone. And, and, a, and I think a, a, some clarity. It, it isn't just that God sees the righteous. It's that the righteous will also see God. Uh, the New Living Translation says the virtuous will see his face. Or the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard, they all talk about how the upright will see or behold God's face. In other words, uh, David's saying that the upright, God's people, we get to see God. We get to see God. Now, when, when was David thinking of getting to see God? We don't really know. Maybe he was thinking about a time in the distant future. You know, one day I'm going to see God. Maybe he was thinking just about like a, a, a moment of victory where God would rescue him. And he's like, I'm going to see God work. He's going to deliver me. I'm not going to have to be in this predicament forever. Uh, or perhaps he meant that a devotional, personal, intimate experience of God was going to be the thing that got him through. We don't really know. But what we do know is that on this side of the cross, David was on the other side of the cross, on this side of the cross, we know that when we believe and trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is imputed into our account. So we're made like the Son, we're remade in the image of the Son, and that means that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. We can, in, in a sense, though we're not seeing God in the fullness of his glory, we would say it like this, we have access to God, amen? And, and David is saying, that's what I'm going to do. You know, God is on the throne, God is the ultimate judge, but God is the greatest goal. He's, he's the one that I want to pursue. He's the one that I want to experience. That was David's conclusion. God is the ultimate goal. Since he's righteous, since he loves righteous deeds, and upright people get to see him, David wanted to see him. He knew that all the threats and the worries and foundation-shaking activity in his world were nothing in comparison to knowing God. If David had been offered peace and security without knowing God, he would have rejected the peace and security. He wanted to know God. I was recently uh, at uh, my eye doctor and uh, just kind of waiting for my appointment to begin. So I was in the waiting room and uh, <clears throat> I was probably the youngest person there. And uh, they had a playlist that was definitely for a different generation that was playing uh, on the sound system. And that song, uh, Big Girls Don't Cry, came on. And... Uh, I can't, I was just sitting there listening to that song and I was thinking if, if, if I was ever going to be tortured, if they put this song on loop, that would be the song that would just, I would go batty like three times in. If you love that song, that's great for you, but not for me. And, uh, you know, before I was just like, oh, you know, it's cool. I'll just sit here in the waiting room. I'll just look on my phone. I'll read a few articles or whatever. I'll just kill some time. But the second that that came on, I was like, I can't wait for my doctor to come out here. I can't wait for my, like every time a nurse came out, I'm like, is it my time? Is it my time? Is it my time? Uh, I think in a sense, we should say 
You know, all the, the stuff that can discourage or annoy, let's turn those into a heart that then says, you know what I want more than that? I want to see past that. I want to see God. I want to experience him. I'm going to let these things be a driving force in a deepened intimacy with him. And I believe that God is calling us as his people right now. The foundations are shaken. The weapons feel loaded. The temptation to flee like a bird to our mountain is ever present. And the feeling there's nothing the righteous can do, it looms. But through it all, God is beckoning. God is calling us. To quote Jeremiah, he's saying, stand in the way and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Let's be those who say, God, in this time when I'm, if I'm feeling that it's chaotic, if I'm feeling that pressure in a time like that, God, I'm going to just go back to your old paths, your old ways. I'm going to get out my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be in Christian fellowship. I'm just going to do the paths that you have set in front of me. I'm going to fix my eyes on you. And confidently, we got to get on that path over and over again. Every day, trade your anxiety and fear with God for confidence and faith. Set your mind on God every day. I've been doing this thing for a number of months now where every morning I think about all the four times in Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about don't be anxious. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Don't be anxious about your clothing. Don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. Don't be anxious. I've been praying every day for a few months now. God, I'm, I'm, I'm committing to you today that, that my anxiety and worry, I want it to be replaced today with confidence and optimism and faith in who you are and what you're doing in my life. So let's have that confidence and faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for a, a, a reason to have such hope. And uh, Lord, we come to you this morning. We can feel so many of the things that the person arguing with David brought, and even our own souls say them so many times. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people who rise up above that and are confident and secure in you. Help us, Lord, to set our eyes upon your throne, your future, and a vision of who you are. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.